0: Well, as a student, was or is there a certain subject that you found totally ungraspable or beyond you? (laughs) I've said this before, but for myself personally, I found chemistry to be unbelievably difficult, impossible to understand. And this is surprising to me because I actually... Overall, I loved science. I enjoyed science. I I did well in basic sciences, like biology and geometry, even meteorology or astronomy. I loved all these things about God's creation. But then chemistry came along, with all its microscopic or even invisible concepts, molecules and atoms and protons and neutrons, electrons, quarks, bonds, masses... Polarity and so on, it was enough to make my head spin faster than an electron around a nucleus. (laughs) Hey there, I learned something. (laughs) But for me, chemistry was trying to grasp the ungraspable, to comprehend the seemingly incomprehensible. For you, maybe you found this experience with math or grammar or music or some other subject as well. We often have these experiences. Now, question for you. Have you ever felt this way about God? Should we feel this way about God? Sometimes, trying to understand God can, bo- can prove to be an extremely difficult undertaking. Us... Finite beings trying to wrap our minds around an infinite God often seems impossible. And if God is so different from us, so above us, so unfathomable, should we even try? Is understanding God and His ways an exercise in futility, a fruitless endeavor? These are fair questions which are often especially raised, I think, by the difficulties of life that arise. When, when life is full of, full of pain and loss is, is when we often most find ourselves questioning God in His ways. We question what He's doing, or why, or if He even cares about us. And we begin to wonder if there's even never hope of understanding these things. Is there hope? Should we seek to understand God and the way he works? Or should we just give up and plead ignorance, become agnostics? God, if he's there, is so beyond me, who knows what's going on? These are questions that we'll explore today as we dive again into the book of Job. Job was an ancient man of God who had lost virtually everything of value to him. His vast flocks and servants were gone. His ten precious children were dead. And then to top it off, he came down with a sickening disease, destroying his health. And as he sat broken in an ash heap, wanting to die, he wondered aloud, what God was doing. He didn't understand. He didn't get it. He was confused. So he boldly lamented his life. His fate. He cried out to God in anguish. Why, God? Can't you just leave me alone and let me die? Meanwhile, what we've seen is three of his friends showed up to try to comfort him. But then they heard him speak. And instead of trying to comfort him, they began to try to convict him and to correct him. They figured that Job had to have done something wrong in order to suffer like he was. But from the backstory that we saw, we know that God wasn't punishing Job or disciplining Job. Job wasn't suffering because he was bad, but actually because he was good. And God And Satan had decided to put his goodness to the test. The question at the heart of everything was, would Job still worship God, even if he lost everything? Would he still worship God? Was God still worthy of worship, even if he lost everything, no matter what? So, when Job... Worshipped in the midst of his suffering, he was passing the test. His friends saw him, though, and thought he had to be failing. Today, we're going to see a, a third friend reach this conclusion, Zophar, who is a confident, forthright Arabian friend of Job's. But to see what Zophar has to say, you'll need to open your Bibles to Job chapter 11. Job chapter 11, you can find that on page 423, if you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, 423, Job chapter 11. And then once you find your place, we'll pause, as we always do, to in order to ask for God's help as we go to his word. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word once again this morning, we pray that your spirit would speak to each of our hearts, that we would be able to discern truth from error, that you would help us to understand, to see you, to know you more, to love you more. We pray that even as we read these words, if there's anyone who is here that is Suffering and going through things like this, that you would speak to their hearts and encourage them this morning. You are there with them. Pray as we do this that you would just pour out your grace upon us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue deeper into Job, we're going to sense the rising frustration. In Job's friends. Look how Zophar starts his little speech. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Should a multitude of words go unanswered, and a man full of talk be judged right? Should your babble silence men, and when you mock, shall no one shame you? So you get the mood? (laughs) Zophar's angry. He's had enough of Job's laments and his multitude of words. So so Zophar basically tells Job, shut up for a minute, stop crying, and listen. The New Living Translation puts it this this way. Shouldn't someone answer this torrent of words? Is a person proved innocent just by talking a lot? Should I remain silent while you babble on? This is harsh. Zophar definitely hasn't sensed Job's heart or how much he's hurting. And now he actually wants to shame Job. When you mock, shall no one shame you. And why? Verse 4. For you say, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. was like, that's just crazy talk. That's impossible. You couldn't know for sure that you're pure and clean in God's eyes. Look at your life. You couldn't be pure. It's just a mess. You're not listening to us. If only God would speak and put you in your place. Look at verse 5. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Now, knowing the end of the story, I tell Zophar, careful what you wish for. But Zophar wishes that God would shed some light on Job's situation, because he's confident that God would be on his side of things. And at this point... Zophar basically goes, since God's not speaking, I'll speak for him. Here's what God would tell you, Job. Verse 5, Oh, that God would speak and open his lips. He would tell you secrets of wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Yikes. (laughs) Yikes. Job, you deserve worse. And we wonder what in the world God could have done more to Job. Chris Rash says this, However secret God's wisdom may be, Zophar is pretty confident that he knows what it all means. This arrogance colors what would otherwise be a beautiful description of God's wisdom in verses 7 and 9. Now look at verse 7 and 9, we'll read those together. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? It is higher than the heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. That would be beautiful, right? Like a song. Higher, deeper, longer, broader. God is measureless and infinite. Verse 7, can you find out the deep things of God? There are things that God knows that we'll never know. Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? The Almighty has no limits. We can look up at the stars and see stars that are thousands of light years away. Is that just incredible or what? God's ways are higher than that. Deeper than Sheol or the grave. And what can go lower than death? Only God. It's over 40,000 kilometers to go around the earth one time. God is so limitless. His ways are longer than that. And standing on a shoreline of the ocean. You can't even see the end of the sea. God's ways are broader than the sea, he says. Measureless, really. And that's Zophar's point. God is so limitless that we can't understand him. What can you do? What can you know, really? And Like we said, this would be beautiful if it weren't in the middle of Zophar's arrogant guilt tripping of Job. But here's, I'm going to sum up Zophar's point for you. This is his major premise that he was angrily trying to get across to Job. Simple, understanding God and his ways can't be done. He says it's impossible for us to understand God and his ways. It can't be done. Remember the questions we asked earlier. Should, Should we see God as being incomprehensible? Is trying to understand God and exercising futility. Zophar would say, yes! Verse 7 to 8. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It's higher than the heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? continues this way down in verse 10. It says, if God passes through and imprisons and summons the court, who can turn him back? For he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? In other words, he's unstoppable. You know in old westerns, with cowboys and such, if if there was an outlaw in town, a hotshot marshal or sheriff might ride into town one day, and might catch the bad guy, arrest him, throw him in jail, maybe even conduct a hanging, and then he'd race off to the next town to chase down the next outlaw. Zophar says, God could act something like that. He could, and no one could stop him. If he passes through and imprisons, summons the court, who can turn him back? God could race through, imprison you, get you tried at court, and you couldn't do nothing. Because... God is just, and he doesn't just let people get away with iniquity. Verse 11, for he knows worthless men. When he sees iniquity, will he not consider it? Zophar might as well have said, Job, you're the outlaw, and God caught you. But Job, you're refusing to even consider this. How dumb could you be? I'm not exaggerating. Look at verse 12. But a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. It's a poetic way of saying stupid people don't ever smarten up. (laughs) Because when does a donkey ever give birth to a man? Never. It's like pigs flying. Likewise, a a truly stupid person will never get understanding. That's what Zophar is saying. Zophar's like, Job, stop being so stupid and smarten up. You'll never understand God. You can't stop him. He knows worthless men need to be punished. And then he goes, so, let me tell you what you should do instead of all this griping. Okay? Understanding God and his ways can't be done, so, so, Repent in order to regain his blessing. Since you can't grasp God's ways, you just need to repent. God will bless you again. Here's his advice, verse 13. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands towards him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away, and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Zophar had his suspicions. Something fishy had been going on in Job's tents. That was the only explanation. So he tells Job, Get rid of all your sin. Repent. Leave it behind. Reach out for God's mercy. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands towards him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. Let not injustice dwell in your tents. And if you do this, I can promise you, God will rescue you from all of this. Verse 15, Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and will not fear. Your disease will be healed. Your fortunes will be restored. You'll have no fear. And then he just keeps piling on the promises. Verse 16, You will forget your misery. You will remember it as the waters that have passed away, and your life will be brighter than the noonday. It its darkness will be like the morning, and you'll feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take your rest and security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. So he's like saying, you won't even remember all this misery. It's just going to be water under the bridge. And you, You'll feel so secure. You'll have so much hope. You'll sleep in peace again. Even your prestige will be restored, and all these people want to be your friends again. My friends, today let me give you a warning. If you ever hear a preacher spew out promises like these, and tell you that you have access to blessings like this now, leave that church immediately. Because as beautiful as these sound, these are deceptively evil promises. God never promises us a trouble-free, secure, rich, fearless, prestigious, friend-filled life. Does God promise to bless us if we repent? Sure, absolutely, but not like this. To Job... These promises would have been bitterly empty. They would have just called to mind to memory his earlier days when he had all this. And besides, he was already doing what Zophar was encouraging him to do. Stretching his whole life out to God, resisting iniquity and injustice, and yet God wasn't doing what Zophar was guaranteeing God would do. Put the cherry on top. Zophar concludes with a sober warning of his own. Job, repent in order to regain God's blessings. Or, don't repent. See what happens. Verse 20. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them. And their hope is to breathe their last. Now, that sounds suspiciously like the exact way Job felt in these moments. And that's not a coincidence. Zophar was accusing Job of being wicked. But there is hope for Job yet. Just get right with God, and it'll all be good again. Now, I'm sure you've already noticed a few things wrong with Zophar's message, which ends at that point. I mean, we saw he was arrogant and inconsistent, assuming he spoke for God while at the same time saying that you can't understand God. He was also obviously overly harsh and unkind in the way he addressed Job. But what's wrong specifically with his point that God can't be understood, so we must repent to be blessed? I'll give you three big problems, very briefly. First... Zophar severely minimizes what we can know about God. He overemphasizes God's transcendence and mystery to the point where we might as well all be agnostics, knowing nothing about God. second major issue with Zophar's message is that truth is misapplied. Like with all the friends, there's a lot of good truth in his message scattered about. In fact... All that Zophar promises Job actually happens to Job in the end. Yet his advice wasn't relevant. It was totally irrelevant to Job since Job had no secret sins to confess. And the truth was misapplied. Even the good truths about God being merciful are misapplied to Job and his situation. Third big problem his suggested motives for repentance are horribly misguided. Job's friends keep telling him, repent in order to get God to bless you again. But that was exactly what Satan predicted would happen. Right? That Job cared more for his blessings than he did for God. Zophar said, worship God... For what you'll get. Not because God is worthy of worship. And this should make us think as well. Why do we follow God? Why, why are we repenting of our sins? Why do we worship God? Because God is good and holy and loving and worthy of our worship. Worthy of our lives. Or because of what he gives us. Because he makes our lives better. Check your motives. They are far more important than we realize. So though Zophar's message was sometimes truthful, sometimes beautiful, it ends up being extremely problematic. And sadly, his message is much more common than we might think both throughout church history and today in the church. There are people who say that God and His ways really are incomprehensible. And I should caution, I would never be so arrogant to say that we can know God exhaustively. Okay? We can't. But I think that people that, who say that God is too mysterious, too beyond us to be known at all, go much too far. One medieval monk John of Roisbrook said that God is immeasurable and incomprehensible, unattainable and unfathomable. the Christian mystic John of the Cross said, If a man wishes to be sure of the road he travels on, he must close his eyes and walk in the dark. Unfortunately, there are many Christians who are following this kind of hogwash today. If you ever have someone tell you something like that, hit them over the head with your Bible. (laughs) because here's the thing what they say would be totally true if God didn't reveal himself to us but God has revealed himself to us in creation in his word best of all in Jesus God has revealed himself to us In our humanity. And because of these revelations, we absolutely can know some things about God. And this forms the undercurrent of Job's response to Zophar in chapter 12. Here's what we're going to see. That we can understand some things about God and his ways. It's that simple. We can indeed understand some true things about God and his ways. We just saw Job receive some pretty big insults, but apparently he could dish them out as well. Look at the beginning of chapter 12. Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. (laughs) Leighton Talbert paraphrases his sarcasm here it's truly you are world class wise men. Whatever will mankind do when you die? For wisdom will vanish from the face of the earth with you. Go soak your heads. (laughs) Then he says, I've got wisdom too. Verse 3. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? I'm not an idiot. Stop treating me like one. In fact, just about everyone knows what you're already telling me. It's common knowledge. Who does not know such things as these? Yes, God generally blesses the righteous, and he generally judges the wicked. But that can't be absolutely true all the time, because my life doesn't fit that. Job then spends the rest of the chapter describing three things that he knows for sure. Three truths that he's desperately holding on to through his time of suffering. We can do the same. And these are by no means the only things we know about God, but they're the three that we see here. First of all, it actually relates to us and the way we relate to God, and that is the way that we suffer. We can know that our suffering is real, and that ultimately it comes from God. Some cults out there like Christian Science Church and And others, teach that suffering is just an illusion of our minds. Really, that belief is more Buddhist than it is Christian. Our suffering is real. It actually happens. And it can be intense. And sometimes it can seem just unbearable. Job knew this firsthand. And in verse 4, he points out the reality, this reality that Zophar's message just couldn't account for. Verse 4, I am a laughingstock to my friends. I, who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughingstock. You know what a laughingstock is? Someone who is an object of ridicule. Someone who, who, that everyone just shakes their head and, and laughs at. Today you might think of someone like Donald Trump, Adam Sandler, Toronto Maple Leafs. <laughs> now, when we see this in Job saying, I'm a laughingstock, and I'm blameless, I'm a laughingstock, we might recoil a bit at his words, thinking, how is this fair? If Job really was blameless, then why would God make him a laughingstock? And the answer is what we saw at the very beginning of the book. Right? That, that God was using Job to bring great glory to himself. The heavens were watching and were marveling at Job's faith and fear of God. And then glorifying God for his great worth that would inspire a man to worship through these kinds of suffering. But let me ask you. This is hard. Are you willing to be a laughing stock for the glory of God? Now, you don't need to go out and bring this on yourself. (laughs) But if God made you a laughing stock, would you still worship him? Are you willing to become, as Paul says, fools for Christ's sake and spectacles to the world? Sometimes, followers of God will be laughingstocks. Objects of scorn, ridicule, and mockery. Others will ask you, how can you still follow God when he does this to you? But those are some of the times that we most closely follow in the footsteps of our Savior. Because if you you wonder how someone could be blameless and a laughing stock at the same time, look no further than the cross, where the innocent Jesus Christ was jeered at, laughed at, and mocked. There is such a thing in God's world as innocent, redemptive suffering. Job is proof, and so is Jesus, even more so. Therefore, we must be extremely careful to not look down on someone else who is suffering. William Shakespeare once said, He jests at scars that never felt a wound. Job says something similar here, but on an even deeper level, verse 5. In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. The NCV puts it this way, Those who are comfortable don't care that others have trouble. May this tendency never be found in us to disdain those who are in pain as if their pain proves that they're rotten. And may our comfort never blind us to other people's troubles. As followers of Christ, we are called to care for those in trouble. And you may not know why they're suffering, but God does, and they really are suffering, and they need care from us. Something that Job was not receiving at all from his friends. Zophar had said that just as the repentant prosper, the wicked inevitably fail. But Job's like, not so. I'm a blameless laughingstock. Also, verse 6 The tents of robbers are at peace. Those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. So far, your your theories don't square with real life. And in Job's eyes, rightfully so, all of this was obviously part of God's sovereign plan. In verse 7, But ask the beasts, and they will teach you. The birds of the heaven, and they will tell you. Or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you. And the fish of the sea will declare to you, Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? Even squirrels and sparrows and shrubbery and sardines know that God is in control. Back when Job said at the beginning that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, he used the name Yahweh for God. Here in chapter 12, verse 9, is the only time in the entire poetry section, this huge chunk of the book of Job, that Job uses the same name. He's reaffirming, Yahweh is in control of my life. He gave and he took away. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. He didn't know this. God holds your life and breath in his hand. It's only because of him that you are breathing right now. And he could take your life right now. what this implies is that even the bad things in life ultimately come from God's hand. There may be other things, even evil things, that give them to us firsthand. But ultimately, they're from God's hand. Are you willing to accept that? To believe it? We may not know why, but when we suffer, we can know that it comes from God. Which should ultimately be a comfort to us, even if it's a little bit bothersome on the front end, because our salvation also comes from His hand. Not only can we know truth about how we suffer, what we're going to see here is we can also know how God saves us, the way that He saves We can know that God really does save his people. And if not now, in eternity. This is the second thing that Job implies that he understands here. And you may have missed it. Back in verse 4, Job said, I am a laughing stock to my friends. I who called to God and he answered me. A just and blameless man a laughing stock. Did you notice that? I who called to God and he answered me. Pause there. When did that happen? When did Job call to God and have God answer him? This hasn't happened at all in what we've read so far in Job. Job's done a lot of calling, but God's been silent in return. The only answer is that this refers to an instance earlier in Job's life, which we aren't told about, a salvation experience. When Job called to God for mercy, and God answered his call. And this previous experience is something that Job is holding on to. He knows it was real. He knows it was true. It's one of the only reasons he has even a flickering of hope. And I would offer you the same hope today. That no matter what you go through in life, you can have confidence that you are saved. Romans 10 tells us, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And God may send you through trials now, but eventually all of God's laughingstocks will be vindicated. God will save his people from sin and suffering and death and hell, all because you have called on him and trusted in him alone to save you. So if you haven't before, I urge you, call in the name of Jesus today. He's the only one that can save you. Confess that he is Lord. Believe that he did die and rose, rise again for you, and you will be saved. We can know this for sure. And that gives hope, even in the darkest seasons of life. You know the way that we suffer. You know the way that God saves. But that's not all. One final point Job makes, which may at first sound a bit like a cop-out, but it's not. It's one of the most absolute crucial things for us to understand for certain about God, and know for certain that God's wisdom is far stronger than ours. We can truly know that God's wisdom is far stronger than ours. Agnostics shrug their shoulders and say, We can't really know anything about God. But believers must say, No, God has revealed Himself to us so we can know something. And one thing we know for sure is that God is far wiser and far stronger than any and all of us. Look at verse 10 again. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words and the palate tastes food? Obviously an ear is for hearing and a mouth palate is for tasting. These things are self-evident, common sense to anyone willing to accept it. So is this, verse 12. Wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. So some people can become wise, especially as they get older. But God is far greater than any human wisdom. Verse 13, contrasts with God our wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. He is infinitely wise, infinitely strong. I like how the message paraphrases Job here. It says, do you think the elderly have a corner on wisdom? That you have to grow old before you understand life? True wisdom and real power belong to God. From him we learn how to live and also what to live for. God's not not whimsical or a blind force. There's intelligent and deliberate purpose behind things. Even at the times when we can barely sense the meaning or justification of God's acts. Finally... Job launches into a long list of how God actually can cause human power to, and human wisdom to fail. Verse 13, With God our wisdom and might, he has counsel and understanding. Verse 14, If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away stripped and judges he makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows the mighty. He deprives this of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and loosens the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth, makes them wander in a pathless waste. They grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Does this not sound like a description of the pageant of human history? (laughs) From natural disasters like famine or flood to the rising and falling of countless nations, all the great kings and leaders and soldiers and counselors of history are like finger puppets. Who made the Greek Empire, the Mongol Empire, the Roman or British Empire, flourish? God did. Who made each of them these shrink or even collapse? God did. Who had, just think of events, who had Columbus find America? Or who had Napoleon succeed for a time? Or the Berlin Wall? fall? Or are all our current leaders get elected? God did. Who, ha- who formed Canada as a nation? And who could make Canada collapse one day? God. We are all puny in the hand of an all-wise, all-powerful God. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. Verse 23 He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. Zophar's moralistic system tries to make God our puppet, where we can pull his strings. But that's far too tame. Job's God is wild, even dangerous, in his wisdom and strength and power. Francis Anderson says, Here Job shows himself to be a more honest observer, a more exuberant thinker than his friends. The mind reels at the immensity of his conception of God. The little deity in the theology of Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar is easily thought and easily believed. But a faith like Job's puts the human spirit to strenuous work. And it is the same simple and sometimes strenuous faith that we are called to have. We may wonder, well, does this mean that God is to be blamed for the bad things that happen in life? I'd say blamed is the wrong word. Credited is more like it. Credited for everything. Because one day, one day when even the worst evils are turned around for good, we won't be complaining any longer. We won't be blaming any longer. We'll be praising his wisdom and strength. The hand of the Lord has done this. will transform from a lament into a song of praise. The hard part is learning to trust his hand and his heart now. How many of you know the name Adoniram Judson? Adoniram Judson was the first official missionary sent out from the Americas in the 1800s. He went to Burma at the age of 24 with his young wife, and he spent the rest of his life trying to reach the Burmese people the long-term fruit of his efforts are nearly 4,000 churches and over 600,000 believers today in Burma, or Myanmar as it's called now. And that they can all partially at least trace their roots back to Ed Judson's pioneering ministry. But, that ministry, during that ministry, Judson experienced numerous unbelievable trials. He didn't baptize a single convert for over six years of hard work. At one point, he was imprisoned and tortured for 17 months as a suspected spy. He and his family struggled with all kinds of diseases, regularly, cholera, malaria, dysentery, and much more. His wife bore him three children, all of whom died. One at birth, one at one and a half, and one at two. The last one outlived his wife by about six months. Later on, he married again and had eight more kids. But his second wife and three of those kids also tragically died while on the mission field. Understandably, (laughs) Aniram Judson struggled with doubt and depression and despair for years. Eventually, God brought him out of that pit. And he allowed him to see some great fruit, bearing fruit in in Burma. Until at the age of 61, Judson himself was taken by a terrible disease and passed away. Some of his last words were, How few there are who die so hard. We hear his story and we wonder, what could have ever sustained Adoniram Judson through his very painful life? The answer? The knowledge that God was sovereign and wise and good. Nothing else. These are his words. Very powerful. If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my sufferings. If I had not felt certain that every trial was ordered by God's hand, I could not have survived my sufferings. I'll tell you what, if we don't have trust in the same, we may not survive. Thankfully, That really is all we need to survive. Be certain of that. Know that. God may be wise beyond us, but he is knowable and he is worthy of our trust. Let's pray. God, may we know you more May we see you more, may we love you more, and may we trust you more with our lives today, our lives tomorrow, and during whatever may come down the road. May we trust you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand?